There's no handbook for your child's health, but we do have a podcast featuring world-class clinical and research physicians covering everything from your child's allergies to zinc levels. This is Kids HealthCast by Wild Cornell Medicine. I'm Melanie Cole, and joining me today is Dr. Julia Cron. She's the site chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Lower Manhattan Hospital, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and vice chair and assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Wild Cornell Medical College. She's here to tell us about adolescent reproductive health today. Dr. Cron, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Such a an unusual time and an exciting time for our teens when they visit the gynecologist for the first time. Do you feel that our kids are more worldly and informed about sexual health, safe practices today than we were, say, when I was a kid? Hi, Melanie. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here to talk about one of my favorite topics, adolescent reproductive health. So to answer to your question, do teens know more today than they did when we were young. I think there is certainly more information out there. There is no question that social media has prompted an information overload. The internet alone, not even considering social media, there is complete information overload for these teens and their parents and guardians. So I think The answer is yes. The question is, how accurate is that information? And that's where we come into play because it is our job as physicians and physicians that care for teens to really be promoting accurate information and dispelling some of the myths that are out there. I also think that there is a general increased comfort level in talking about some of these, quote, sensitive topics. And I think that that is certainly a good thing. And that's why we need to collaborate and join with parents and guardians so that we can give them also accurate information so that they can have these conversations with their teens. Those are great points. And so important for parents to note that it can be confusing information. And now it's even varying by state to state. So it can be even more confusing. So you, our gynecologist, are really the person we need to go to when we want that quality information. So let's start with our daughters. When do we take them to the gynecologist for the first time? I remember the first time with little Cece, and I think I cried. It was kind of exciting. So I just want to backtrack and comment on your comment about the variation among states. I think that shouldn't be underestimated of the importance of providing accurate evidence-based information to all of our teens, no matter where they live. I think that your zip code should not dictate what information you are getting. So again, thanks for mentioning that. And we will continue to work to provide accurate evidence-based information to teens throughout our country. Okay, so to answer your question of when should a teen have her first visit. So the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends a first visit between 13 and 15. And I like to say that this visit is not just about sex. So reproductive health care and gynecology is not just about sex. It is about preventative care. It is about caring for the entire patient and all of their issues. And that it is really, really important that a 
patient has a trusted professional that they can bring questions to and talk about these, quote, sensitive topics that they may not be able to talk with their parent or guardian. So a lot of moms will say to me, oh, well, my daughter's not sexually active, therefore she doesn't need to go to the gynecologist. And I would say we really want our teens to get into the gynecologist before they're sexually active. When they're going through all of the changes of puberty and all of these things are happening to their body and they have questions and they aren't necessarily getting the right answers. So to your original point of all that information that's out there in the world, much of it, which is inaccurate, it's really good to get your teen into the gynecologist so that they can get accurate information before they become sexually active so that they can make informed decisions as they enter adolescence and become young adults. I think that's so important. I wish there was a gynecologist for boys because they need to learn this stuff too. So hopefully they're getting that from their pediatricians, but for women, we have you. And I've relied on my gynecologist for 50 years. So I know how important this is. Now, Tell us about the tests and exams during that first exam. I mean, you're not doing pap smears on them yet, right? You're just teaching them lessons. What are you doing? So I think the very first thing is that the majority of young people do not need pelvic exams. And so I think a lot of women my age, your age, probably equate a GYN visit with a pelvic exam. And again, I want to emphasize that for the majority of patients who come for their first visits, a pelvic exam is not indicated. So I like to dispel that because often when I see patients for the first time, they're sitting on the exam room table, really stressed out. They're kind of completely tuned out because all they're thinking about is this pelvic exam that is coming. So first things first, I like to say that most people do not need a pelvic exam. You asked about the pap smear. So The other thing I think that is a little bit of a myth is that a pelvic exam equals a pap smear. A pap smear is a very specific test that is a screening test for cervical cancer. You need a pelvic exam to do a pap smear, but every time there is a pelvic exam, that does not imply that a pap smear was obtained. So the guidelines now recommend pap smears starting at the age of 21. So again, back to my point is most people that have no abnormal signs or symptoms do not need a pelvic exam before the age of 21. And the current recommendations say pap smears every three years for women until the age of 30. So for most young women, they need periodic pelvic exams, but not an annual pelvic exam. So again, back to my point of a pelvic exam does not equal a pap smear. So a pelvic exam has several components. First, we are just looking at the external genitalia because remember, sometimes we get information from visualization of the external genitalia. Then we do the speculum exam, which allows us to see inside the vagina. It allows us to see the cervix, which is the opening to the uterus. At that time, we sometimes obtain cultures and screening tests for several sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia. And that's usually just a swab that is done. 
And then the last part of the exam is doing what we call a bimanual exam, where we feel the uterus and ovaries to see if there's any problems. And again, we are often doing that in patients that have specific concerns or complaints, like abnormal bleeding, abnormal discharge, pelvic pain. Those are the patients that a pelvic exam is warranted. So one thing I do want to emphasize, though, is although we don't do the pelvic exam every time, I think it's really important to normalize the pelvic exam, right? We do not want to, I use the term, exceptionalize. We have to teach people that the female genitalia is part of their body. And to me, it is similar to listening to the heart and looking in the ears, right? So it's my job to normalize this and make people feel comfortable with it in a very patient-centered way. The other question I often get, is a breast exam required? And I would say for the majority of teens, a breast exam is not warranted unless they have, again, specific concerns or complaints. I do teach what I call breast self-awareness because I think it's important for teens to kind of know their whole body and get used to what is normal and what a normal breast feels like. It is exceedingly, exceedingly rare to have a teen that has any significant pathology of their breasts. I think that was the part where I got emotional was when my daughter was learning those things. And it's good when a gynecologist really listens and says, are you comfortable with talking about this? Or are you comfortable with this pelvic exam today? And so she got my daughter so comfortable that now she's just like, yeah, whatever you got to do. It's fine. You know, we women, we have to learn that. But one of the questions that I know that a lot of moms like me had, can we go into that appointment with our daughters? Should we not be? How involved? I mean, we've learned about with the pediatrician, kind of when we're shoot out of the room at this point, at some point in the child's teen years. What about the gynecologist? So I learned many, many years ago that if you don't engage the parent or guardian, it's really hard to get to the teen. So I do like to engage the parent or guardian. The way that I do most of my visits is that when I go into the room, the patient is usually there with her parent or guardian. I usually put it out there and say, The first thing we're going to do, the three of us are going to talk, and then I'm going to ask you, parent, guardian, to leave the room so that I can talk to your daughter in private. The reason why I do that is because it's really important for your daughter to have a safe space where she can ask the questions that she may not be able to ask her friends or her family members. And as a parent, you really want your daughter to have that safe space. And when it's framed that way, I think almost no parent says no to that. And then the question of the exam, if the patient needs an exam, I leave it up to her of whether she wants her parent or guardian in the room. And then if we need to, we regroup and the three of us talk again. But before I do that, when I'm talking to the patient alone, I say, you know, here are the guidelines. What we talk about is between us. There are exceptions to those guidelines. If there is any concerns about the patient's safety, then by law, I need to talk to a parent. But otherwise, what we talk about is between the two of us. And then we will decide how we are going to re-engage the parent or guardian. But again, emphasizing that it's really, really important for patients to have a safe space so that they can talk to a trusted 
adult physician healthcare provider that can give them accurate information. When I do have that conversation with the patients, I often say that it is best to engage their parent if they can. However, there are circumstances where teens can't engage their parents in all of their decision-making. I have two teens myself, and my pediatrician many years ago told me, you actually don't want to know everything about your teen. And I think that's an important point. There comes a point where you don't need to or want to know everything, but you want your teen to have somebody that they can talk to and get accurate information. Well, and communication is just absolutely so important. And one of the things that we hear about today is the HPV vaccine. You mentioned pap smears. We're talking about human papillomavirus, and then there's cervical cancer. And all of these things are swirling around in the media. I'd like you to speak briefly about the HPV vaccine. And as a gynecologist, do you see, in your opinion, that parents have questions or the teen themselves that they think that it's making sex okay and safe and giving the go-ahead. I think that's a myth. Emphatically, that is a myth. So giving your daughter or son, it is actually approved for boys, the HPV vaccine is not going to make them more likely to be sexually active. Additionally, and we could talk about this in more detail, but contraception also does not make teens more likely to be sexually active. The HPV vaccine, so HPV stands for human papillomavirus. It is a virus that is spread through contact. And from a gynecologic standpoint, it does two things. It causes genital warts and precancer and cancer of the cervix. So Gardasil, which is the brand name for the HPV vaccine, there is very good evidence that it protects young people from HPV and decreases the incidence of precancer and cancer of the cervix. It has been approved for patients age nine. It actually now is approved for older women up to the age of 45, but it's approved starting at age nine. Many people choose to give it around age 12 or 13. Importantly, if it's given before the age of 15, it's a two-dose regimen. If it's over 15, then it's a three-dose regimen. Many times I hear the comment of my daughter's not sexually active. I don't think she needs it. Again, there's really good evidence that if you give it before exposure to HPV, it is much more effective. So we actually want to give it to young people before they become sexually active. That's so important. Great points that you made. So now I'd like you to speak about birth control because that is a question on the minds of both parents and our teenagers. And certainly as they get into later high school years and head off to college, these are things that are so important and indeed top of mind for some of our girls. So speak about birth control briefly for us and just tell us how you speak and how you counsel our teenage girls and their caregivers. First, I want to just make a comment of the use of 
birth control for non-contraceptive reasons. And I always say to my patients, I kind of wish that we didn't call it all birth control. I think there are instances where I wish the medication that we used was called like the period regulator or the hormone modifier, because a lot of birth control we use for non-contraceptive reasons. We use it to manage heavy periods. We use it to manage irregular periods. We use it to manage pelvic pain, painful periods. So there are many, many young people that are using birth control for non-contraceptive reasons. And I would love to normalize that. If a young person is missing school every single month because of problems with her period, and we have a really good way to manage that, I think we should, and we shouldn't not use it just because it's called birth control. And back to your point of Putting young people on birth control for that reason to modify and improve their periods, is that going to make them more likely to be sexually active? The answer is no. So that's where education comes into play. And acne. Great point. Yep. So there is really good evidence that birth control pills improve acne. There's actually birth control pills that have been FDA approved for acne. I agree with you. It shouldn't be necessarily called birth control. And when with my daughter, you know, in pelvic pain, girls have all these other issues that various forms of the pill can help or various hormone modalities. So I agree with you there. And I think it's so important to maybe let's look at the nomenclature, change it up one day. Yeah, that would be my dream. So then moving on to young people that need contraception. So the first question, the first things that we talk about is the decision to become sexually active and the importance of consent and the importance of healthy relationships is really important. So that's the first part of the conversation. And then there's the conversation about protection from pregnancy and protection from sexually transmitted infections. So really at this point, the only way to protect against sexually transmitted infections is condom use. So we talk about that. And then in terms of pregnancy prevention options, young people today are actually pretty lucky. There are a lot more options today than there were say 20 years ago. And I have a lot of options to offer my teens. And I usually start out with kind of the quote, least invasive to the most invasive. And there's a whole spectrum of options. So the traditional pill, the same medication is now able to be delivered via a patch, the birth control patch. And there's also a ring that can go inside the vagina. And that lasts for three weeks at a time. So for young people that can't remember to take a pill every day, there are other options. Some people choose the birth control shot, which is a three-month shot. Interestingly, now there is a one-month shot available that patients can self-administer. This became more popular during the COVID pandemic when patients couldn't come into the office. So I'm thrilled that there's so many options for young people out there today. So I would encourage everybody to talk to their gynecologist about what option is best for them. We are just giving such great information here today. Dr. Cron, I'd like you to wrap it up with a summary. What you would like parents and their children, their teen girls to know about their first adolescent preventive gynecology visit and reproductive health care, learning about our bodies, knowing what's going on, and anything else you'd like to mention for the listeners. 
I do want to make one comment about the gender diverse teens. Throughout this podcast, we talked about girls and young women. But another population that I care for that kind of fits into the adolescent gynecology realm is the transgender patients who need certain things like menstrual suppression for their gender dysphoria. And that is a unique population that fits into this reproductive gynecologic care. So I just want to put that out there. And in summary, what I'd like to say is that parents and guardians should think about bringing their young patients to the gynecologist early in their reproductive years around puberty so that they can have conversations with a trusted adult who can provide evidence-based information that can help their teens as they go through the incredible transition of puberty into young adulthood. There's lots of things to think about, and I would encourage you to have your gynecologist be part of that team that helps care for your person. I agree. Part of that team. And it's so important. I mean, I am still with my gynecologist literally 40 years after I met her. And now she sees my daughter. And so it really does carry on. You're such an important part of our lives. Thank you for joining us today. And while Cornell Medicine continues to see our patients in person, as well as through video visits, and you can be confident of the safety of your appointments at Wild Cornell Medicine. That concludes today's episode of Kids HealthCast. We'd like to invite our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review Kids HealthCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcast. And for more health tips, go to wildcornell.org and search podcasts. And don't forget to check out Back to Health. We have so many great podcasts there. I'm Melanie Cole. Thanks so much for joining us today. Listen now to On the Mind, the new podcast from Wild Cornell Medicine, discussing the latest hot topics in psychiatry, psychology, and mental health. Join Dr. Daniel Knoffelmacher as he explores recent research in cutting-edge clinical care with leading scientists and providers. Learn new initiatives in community wellness and how to process your mental health journey while exploring everything on the mind. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast, opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Wild Cornell Medicine as an institution.